Good morning. My name is Karen. The Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 22, 20 to 25. On that day, I will call my servant, Ilikam, Hilika's son. I will give him your robe and wrap him in your sash, and I will hand him over to your authority. He will be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place the key to David's house on his shoulder. What he opens, no one will close. What he closes, no one will open. I will fasten him securely like a tent peg, and he will be a throne of honor for his ancestor's house. All the honor of his household will hang upon him. The offspring and the offshoots, every little dish, every little bowl, every little jar. On that day, says the Lord of, of heavenly force, the peg that is fastened securely will give away. It will be cut down and it will fall and all the load hanging on it will be lost. The Lord has spoken the word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Noemi and the New Testament reading is found in Revelation 3, 7 and 8. Write this to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. These are the words of the one who is holy and true, who has the key of David. Whatever he opens, no one will shut. And whatever he shuts, no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have set in front of you an open door that no one can shut. You have so little power, and yet you have kept my word and haven't denied my name. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Pam. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Mark 13, verses 32 to 37. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The Gospel of the Lord. Remain standing as we pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you are a good and gracious Father. We thank you for sending your Son, Jesus. Thank you for giving your life. Thank you that you were raised up again and are seated on the throne. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are with us, that you fill us. And so come even now as we hear the word of God. Breathe these words into our hearts. Bring light and life and hope and joy, we pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you today. We are in a series called Long Nights, which, contrary to popular opinion, is not a series for new parents or parents with small children. Thank you for that courtesy laugh there. It is a series that is going to help us as we journey through Advent 
Now, many of you are aware of this. Some of you, this is kind of the first time to mark Advent as a separate season from Christmas. But Advent is, in Christian practice and Christian tradition, a season of preparation and expectation for Christmas. Christmas is the actual birth, and Advent, even though Advent means arrival, it is practiced and engaged in as a season of preparation. In fact, oftentimes repentance and of expectations. And so Advent, in many ways, though, is very much much like this great season that all of us are in as Christians, we live between two arrivals. We live between Christ's first arrival, and then we're told in the scripture that he will come again in glory, the Son of God in power and glory. And so we are waiting for his second arrival, which sometimes, some places in the New Testament actually word it as an appearing so that we don't get the wrong idea that it's an arrival or a returning because he, he went away somewhere. This isn't like E.T. disappeared and we don't know when he's going to come back. You know, we, It's probably better to speak of it as an, a revealing and appearing in glory and when his kingdom arrives in fullness. And so we find ourselves in a very real way not only marking Advent because it's these four weeks leading up to Christmas, but also understanding that Advent is the mode that we're always in as followers of Jesus, living between two arrivals. And so the series is called Long Nights because for all of us living in the northern hemisphere, Advent coincides with winter. Now for all of our brothers and sisters in Australia, God bless them. They're throwing another shrimp on the bobby and whatnot. But for us here, we have literally these long winter nights. And so there is, a, there is a, a practice here of saying, you know what, just as these long nights of darkness uh, happen during the season of Advent, that's kind of like what our souls feel. We're feeling the longing for morning to come. And so it is a little bit like what Pastor Evan said this morning. There's a complex of emotions, a complexity of emotions that we experience. On the one hand, there is a joy saying, we know that Christ is the King and Christ has come. And because we know it, it's the first half of those words we say at the Lord's table every Sunday, Christ has died, Christ is risen. And we're like, yes, joy. But then for many of us, there's also this ache of awareness of the brokenness in our own lives and in the world around us. And so we say, ah, but Christ will come again. And so we hold together not only two arrivals, but we hold together a complexity of emotions, both joy and longing. And so to help us through this series, we actually were pretty clever as a staff for the first time ever. Um, we decided to make a pocket liturgy, and this is really led by Lori Duncan and Pastor Jason. And the, this is a little pocket liturgy. There's a couple pages uh, really for each day. It's very short, very simple, some guided prayer, guided reflections throughout Advent. You can get them at the table out there. You can also get them on Amazon. If you'd like to have it as a Kindle download on your iPhone or Android, get the Kindle app and you can download it right there. It's just a couple bucks. And it's designed to help us as we walk through Advent. And the reflections that, are, that we're given to meditate on, both in the pocket liturgy and for the series, are a set of old songs called the O Antiphons. Now, if you want to feel very clever at your Christmas party, just say, I've been studying the O Antiphons lately. And I know that it'll make you sound clever because I didn't know what the O Antiphons were when Jason and Lori and the team said, we should do a pocket liturgy for Advent on the O Antiphons. And I said, what is that? It turns out they're old songs from maybe the 8th century, maybe earlier than that, 
that actually take some of the language and imagery of the Old Testament expectation of a Messiah, and then they show how it comes to fulfillment in Jesus. And so we're going to look at a couple of phrases, and today we're looking at the phrase, O key of David. O key of David. Each one of the antiphones have a beckoning part of the song where it says, come, come key of David. Now what in the world does this phrase mean? Key of David. Keys, little as they are for us, are actually hugely important. Several years ago, we were living in a home on the west side of town, an older home that we were working on kind of fixing up and remodeling, and there was a door that led from the garage into the basement that we never received the key to. Uh, the, the previous homeowner didn't have a key for it, and so we thought we could spend the money and re-key the thing and put in a new lock that we were already spending on other things. We're like, we'll just never lock that door. Well, one day we came in through the garage, and lo and behold, the door was locked. And we thought, oh no, who did it? Who spun the little thing and closed the door behind them? And now it's locked and there's no one home. What are we going to do? And so we started to go through our options. Well, option one is to try to bust down the door to our own home, you know, and you think, well, that's probably not great. That's going to lead to other costs, issues. And then we thought, wait a minute, we could maybe try that thing that you hear about with using a credit card and try to key your own door open. And we're like, that's kind of weird. And what if the neighbors notice? And then we've got smart, so let's just pay a locksmith and finally he, he let us in. But if you've ever misplaced keys or found yourself locked out of a car or a house, needing to get somewhere. None of you probably ever have that happen. You think, oh man, that little itty bitty key is actually massively important. Keys get us into places and they keep people out of places. And sometimes in Advent, we can feel like we're waiting on a door to open, a door to which we don't have the key. Maybe in Advent, you feel like you're waiting for a door to be closed. You want to lock out some things, shut out some things, but you don't have the key for that either. And so there is a sense in which the season of waiting can feel like a season of powerlessness because we don't have the key. We don't have the requisite power and authority to open or close doors. The O antiphone, O key of David, goes like this. It says, O key of David and scepter of the house of Israel, the rod of authority, you open and no one can shut, you shut and no one can open. Come and lead the prisoners from the prison house, those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death. And so we begin this morning with the first question, what is a key? In the biblical imagery of this stuff, what in the world is a key? Well, not unlike how the first computers were a lot bigger than computers today, a key in the ancient world was a lot bigger than keys for us today. In fact, keys were so large, they often had to be set on a person's shoulders in order to carry them. And that's because the doors that were opening were not little seven-foot or eight-foot doors. These were gigantic doors, sometimes to the city gates, sometimes closer in to the king's palace or the king's court, the king's quarters and domain. And so there would be a steward who was in charge of the king's doors and had the key to it. A key in the Bible symbolizes power and authority. A key in the Bible symbolizes power and authority. Now right away, we being 21st century, postmodern, western, whatevers that we are, 
we're already squirming because we don't love power. And we understand that isn't power the reason for all of our problems in the world? And isn't power the reason why people are being exploited? Yes, indeed. But it is the misuse of power, not power itself. One of our modern attempts to solve the the abuses of power is to eliminate all power. It would be to say, no keys for anyone. Nobody gets a key. No doors are locked. In fact, no doors. Let's just have a flat situation here where, where there's, there's no one in a place of power or authority. In fact, it's interesting. I was reading a book earlier this year about sports teams that are experimenting with having no team captains, as if to say, let's just keep everything equal. We don't need hierarchies, no team captains. And some uh, corporate environments are experimenting with, let's not have any managers. Let's just have everybody kind of be self-motivated to work. Well, as you might suspect... The experiment is an abysmal failure. Even in the sporting context, turns out leadership matters. Turns out leadership is important. And so the question is not whether we should have power or no power. The question is, what does it look like to be worthy of the power you've been trusted with? What does it look like to become worthy of the power you've been trusted with? Well, this phrase, key of David, shows up in only two places in the entire Bible. How about that for a text for today? And it only appears once in the Old Testament, and it's, the text for that is Isaiah 22. Now, the backdrop of this, the verses we're going to read, we're going to pick up Isaiah 22 in verse 20, but, but a few verses before we discover what's happened here is there's a guy named Shebna, and Shebna used to have the key to the house of David, the great royal kingdom complex. And Shebna used this key to make for himself, get this, a fancy tomb. I don't know the connection. How is it that the royal key allows you to make a special tomb for yourself or why? But it must have meant something about prestige and status. And then it also says that Shebna used his position of authority for to make himself a grand home. So a grand home and a grand burial site. Now Shebna represents all of our fears about power. We know it. We know the story of the unethical CEO who makes sure that somehow the lion's share of everything goes to him while other people are stuck on min- at minimum wage. Shebna is the, is the person who knows how to leverage the system in just the right way that it has maximum benefit to him and minimal benefit to anyone else. Shebna is the, the prototypical figure who abuses power and authority. But notice that God's response to Shebna's excess is not to say, no more keys. From now on, there are no keys. Nope. This is what he says in verse 20. He says, on that day I will call my servant Eliakim, Hilkiah's son, and I will give him your robe and wrap him in your sash, and I will hand over to him your authority. He will be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, and I will place the key to David's house on his shoulder. He'll have it. And what he opens, no one will close, and what he closes, no one will open. The question is not whether or not there are keys. There are keys. The question is not whether or not there is power and authority. There is power and authority. The question is, who is worthy of it? Who is worthy of it? And so there's a sort of 
cliffhanger in Isaiah because even Eliakim is sort of a steward of this key to the house of David. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, it's like the steward of Gondor. If you're not a Lord of the Rings fan, you're like, I have no clue what that means. It's okay. One day Aragorn will come. (laughs) He's a steward. But what is a dot, dot, dot in Isaiah is an exclamation point in Revelation. What is a waiting moment in Isaiah to say, okay, so Shebna wasn't worthy and Eliakim is temporarily worthy, but long term here, who's got the key of David? And the book of Revelation answers this for us. Revelation 3, verse 7, write this to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, not the city in Pennsylvania. I know, I know I'm stating the obvious here. This is from the first century ancient city. Some of you are all like, Philadelphia's old. I mean, it's the birthplace of liberty and all that, but uh, it's not that old. Okay, we're talking like first century now. Write this to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. These are the words of the one who is holy and true, who has... The key of David. Whatever he opens, no one will shut. And whatever he shuts, no one will open. Who is worthy of that kind of power? Who is worthy of that kind of authority? My friends, his name is Jesus the Messiah. It's Jesus alone. Only Jesus can hold that kind of power and authority in our life. Other human beings, other rulers may use that kind of power for their own benefit and to exploit others. But Jesus himself is the key of David. And so now we begin to ask ourselves, well, what door does Jesus shut? What door is it that Jesus shuts? And right away, maybe you have images from early childhood trauma of Christianity, Some of you, maybe you're just coming back to church, but your earliest memories of Christianity was of a menacing Jesus with a key and a door ready to say, not so fast, little Billy. You will not enter my kingdom. (laughs) Shut the door in your face. Maybe you have this impression that Jesus holds the key and he shuts doors and you're like, oh gosh, don't be on the wrong side of this. You might get the door slammed in your face. It's important to look at what the book of Revelation says about the kinds of doors Jesus shuts, the kinds of keys he has. Revelation 1, the very first chapter, verse 17, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, but he put his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. Now listen to this. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look. Now I'm alive forever and always, and because of that, I have the keys of death and the grave. What door does Jesus shut? Jesus shuts the door on death and the devil himself. Shuts the door on death. Now, now we need to pause here and think about this for a moment, because it's very significant that the translation we use here for Revelation 1 says death and the grave. Some of your translations, maybe the way you memorized it even was death and hell. And so your impression, once again, is of a hell where souls are in torment. And God locks them down there and says, door shut. Boom, depart from me. And so we got to stop for a minute and say, is this the picture that the New Testament gives us? It's important for us to realize that the Greek word in the New Testament used for this is Hades. 
It's the domain of the dead. That's all. It's the domain of the dead. That's all. And in fact, the book of Revelation says there is a judgment, but it's coming. And one day all the dead will be raised up before judgment. And then at judgment, we figure out where everyone's going to get sorted. But that means there are no souls in torment right now. You're like, wait a second, what? There are no souls in torment right away. Wait a second, is this some funny doctrine here? If you read the scriptures, the domain of the dead is the now, but the future judgment is coming. We say this in the creed. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. When is the judgment? When he comes. It hasn't happened yet. You're like, well, where did we get all of our funny images about souls in torment? Dante? And before Dante, we're like, well, Dante was an Italian in the Middle Ages. What, what, where did that come from? It came from Northern European pagan religions. True story. I was just reading a secular historian writing about the rise of Christianity. His name's Tom Holland. And he talks about how his Christianity had to spread northward into Europe as the Islamic conquest took over the Middle East and North Africa. These pagan tribes began to be converted. And in an effort to sort of contextualize the message of the gospel, they picked up some things that were part of pagan religions and said, oh yeah, that's kind of like what we teach. And one of the things that was integrated into Christian teaching in Northern Europe was this notion. It was a, 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 a word from these peoples in Northern Europe, the word hell. Isn't that something? And the word hell in pagan religion was a place for tortured and tormented souls in the underworld. And so these Christians said, oh, yeah, yeah, listen, Jesus has conquered. And they said, mm, death in the grave, mm, it's kind of like hell. And all of a sudden, it began this distortion of teaching to where we, under, we think of hell as a present place where souls are in torment. But that's not the vision of the New Testament. And that's not the vision of the book of Revelation. When it says he has the keys, this is why it's important to get the words right. He's got the key to death and the grave. That's the New Testament's way of saying, he who was dead and is now living knows the way out. He who was dead and is now living makes sure that when you die, death will not be a room with no doors. Death will be a room that you will leave behind one day and God says, let's close that door. You ain't going back there no more. You're not going back into that. The grave will not have a hold on you. Friends, that's good news. That's good news. The grave has no claim on you. The door of the grave is shut. You'll pass through death, but you will not be stuck in death and the domain of the dead. That's what it means for Jesus to shut that door. What about the other door? The door on the devil. What does it look like for Jesus to shut the door on the devil? In the New Testament, actually throughout the scriptures, the devil is called the Satan, the great accuser. What would it look like for Jesus to shut the door in the face of the accuser? Do you have something from your life that you're like, oh, the, the, that thing is haunting me. I don't know that I'll ever outrun that. I don't know that I'll ever shake what happened to me. My friends, the, the good news of Jesus as the key of David is he shuts the door on your accuser and no man can open that door again. No one can open that door. And you see this in the flesh in Jesus incarnate. 
John's gospel, John 8, tells a story of a woman caught in the act of adultery. And these men come and say, we're going to stone her, Lord. She's a sinner. She's made a mistake. And, or she was, more accurately, probably the victim of some sort of exploitation situation. And Jesus says, well, fine. Let each one of you who's without sin throw the first stone. And then they all leave. And the only one worthy of being an accuser instead becomes an advocate. When Jesus is described in the New Testament, in John's epistles, he's described as our advocates, not the accuser. Never, never the accuser. And so Jesus says, hey, look up. Where are the people that condemn you? They're gone. I've shut the door on that story. I've shut the door on the accuser of your souls. For Jesus to be the key of David is for him to close the door on every, on every sin, on every past life, on every mistake that's ever been made. None of those things will haunt you anymore. And maybe it helps you to kind of use your imagination a little bit. I'm not a horror movie guy, but every horror movie has at least one scene where the evil stuff is trying to get in the house and they're trying to hope the door holds, right? Or maybe something more seasonally appropriate, Home Alone. Keep the bad guys out. That's friendlier. That's a little, yeah, it's nicer. And you're just sort of hoping, I hope these locks work, right? If not, we got a whole bunch of traps planned, right? Jesus shuts the door on the accuser and the voices of the, the liar that says, but you know, you, you, did, you did this once, and you know when you were in your 20s, you made this mistake, and actually, what about your previous, this situation and this situation, and all these voices trying to seep through, and all you have to do is say, Jesus... You got the door, right? He's like, I got the door. It's closed, right? It's closed. Is it ever going to be open? It will never be opened again. You've got to believe that. You've got to believe that. Well, if that's the door that Jesus shuts, what's the door that Jesus opens? What door does Jesus open? The door of, it says he's the key of the house of David. It's interesting because sometimes we use this phrase, Jesus, you open doors that no man can shut. I've been in prayer meetings where Christians pray this stuff all the time, but they're praying it over like job promotions. Now, listen, we should pray about everything. Pray for the job promotion. Pray for, that's, that's all well and good. Just don't use that verse because that's not what the key of David is. Sometimes I think what's happening is we're knocking at the same doors we've always knocked at and asking Jesus to be the key to our worldly success. And so maybe you, 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 you know, you're new to the faith, you weren't a believer, and you've been standing at the door knocking, saying, I want self-fulfillment, I want significance, I want material wealth, I want prosperity and success. And someone says, you need to believe in Jesus. And you're like, okay, I believe in Jesus. Jesus, I'm still standing at the same door, now open this one. And you haven't changed the door that you're knocking at, but you're hoping for Jesus to be the key that opens that door. My friends, he's not the key that opens the door to your self-actualization dreams. He's not the key that opens the door to your desires for material wealth. We all want to do well. We all want to be comfortable. We all want that. We can pray about all those things. But the promise of Jesus, the Messiah, is not that he opens the door to health and wealth. It's that he opens the door to the house of David. And you're like, well, I didn't want that. It's like, what's the house of David anywhere? Let me tell you. <laughs> the house of David is an Old Testament shorthand for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. 
What door does Jesus open? He opens the door of the kingdom to us. And in case we forget how massive the kingdom is, remember what Jesus said in Matthew's gospel. He says, look, guys, you don't get it. You're praying about this and you're praying about that. But let me tell you what you need to seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added to you. It turns out that when you do lose your life, you will find it. When you enter the kingdom, you actually do find your true identity as a child of God. It it is true that you actually do discover how you were made and who you were made to be. You do fully come into your own when you enter the kingdom. But it's not by pursuing self-actualization or fulfillment or meaning. It comes by seeking the kingdom. That's the door to knock at. I mean, I just picture us knocking at little hobbit-sized doors, you know. There's another Lord of the Rings reference. And just, I just, Lord, just open this door. And he's like, woohoo, over here. Gigantic door to the kingdom. Already open. And you're like, I know, but I got this little itty-bitty door. He's like, you don't want to go in that room. There's no head clearance. <laughs> you want to go into the wide and spacious kingdom? Come here, this door is already open. Part of becoming a Christian is entering rehab for your desires. Part of becoming a Christian for all of us is to rehabilitate our appetites, the things we thought we wanted God to open for us. And he's like, that's fine. I'm glad you talked to me about everything. But I just want to remind you, seek first the kingdom whose doors have already been opened to you. The reign of God where justice and truth and beauty and freedom and wholeness, that's where it is. Seek first the kingdom. It's like that famous C.S. Lewis quote in one of his sermons, The Weight of Glory, where he says, God finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're too easily pleased. We keep asking Jesus to be the key to these small itty-bitty doors, and he's like, "Mm, I'm the key to the great big door." And Lewis says, you know, we're like a child who's happy to play with mud pies in the slum when we've been offered a holiday at sea, which if you know the Brits, a holiday at sea is like as close to paradise as they could imagine in their rainy, cloudy aisle. (laughs) The second door that is open for us is the door of the gospel, the door for the gospel to be spread through us. The door to spread the gospel is open now for us. When you read the phrase open doors in the New Testament, almost always it refers to an opening for the gospel to go forth. Paul prays, pray for me for open doors. I think this every time we sing the song Waymaker. It's like we're not saying, God, just open up the ways for me. It's like, no, no, open up the way for the king. Lord, can you open doors for me at work for your kingdom to arrive at IBM as it is in heaven? Lord, open up doors here so that the kingdom can arrive at District 2 as it is in heaven. At District 11 as it is. Lord, open doors for the gospel, the good news to arrive so that the king's rule and justice would come. Revelation 3, verse 8, the very next verse after Jesus is called the key of David, it says, I know your works. Look, I have set in front of you an open door that no one can shut. He's already told him, I'm the guy who opens doors that no one can shut. And he says, I've set before you an open door. You have so little power, yet you have kept my word and haven't denied my name. 
We don't fully know what was going on with this congregation in Philadelphia, but most of the commentaries agree it was probably true that these group of Jewish followers of Jesus had been expelled from the larger Jewish community. Imagine people, you're already a marginalized people group in the Roman Empire. You're Jews. You're already living on the fringe. And then your one group of people on the fringe say, yeah, we don't want you either. You're like, oh, man. And it can feel like every door is being slammed in your face. Does anybody want me? Does, do I belong anywhere? Do I have any kind of access? And Jesus says, behold, I've set before you an open door. I've opened the only door that matters. And then he says, I'm going to, though your strength has been little, you've persevered. In other words, your witness to the gospel is going forth. It may not feel like your role in the spread of the gospel is significant. You might feel like, I, I, I'm just a, a parent who stays home with children. I, I'm just a person who does this. I just work at, a, at Starbucks. I just work at a call center. I just, I just, I just. What if you woke up tomorrow morning and said, Lord, you have set an open door before me for your kingdom to arrive with my little ones, even as it does, even as it is in heaven. Jesus, you've set before me an open door in my place of work for the gospel to arrive there. What would justice look like if it showed up at your workplace? What would beauty look like if it showed up in your home? What would truth and freedom look like if it showed up wherever you go? See, there's a sense in which these open doors become a way of us using every power, every privilege, every platform to welcome in the King of Kings. To welcome in the King of Kings. We are called to be the anti-Shebna. If Shebna used his keys for personal profits, we're going to be like Jesus, the key of David. See, here's the thing. We don't often hear it enough. The kingdom is like the king. The kingdom is like the king. And if the king, Jesus, who knew all authority had been entrusted to him, John 13, took off the robe and began to wash the feet of his disciples, if that's what the king does, what do you think people in the kingdom are meant to be? What do you think the kingdom looks like? It looks like using every bit of power, every bit of privilege, every bit of platform to say, God, not just for my benefit, but Lord, for the benefit of others. God, let the gospel arrive. God, let the good news come. God, let the kingdom show up. In many ways, it's like being a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. The psalmist prayed in Psalm 84. He said, better is one day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. And I have to wonder, Paul, being schooled as he was in the Psalms, was thinking as he said, pray for me for open doors, if he's like, got a little smile on his face and thought, that's pretty much what I am. Bond servant of Christ, apostle, blah, blah. Nah, doorkeeper. I'm a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. I get to stand by an open door for the Gentiles to hear the good news. I get to stand and, and in Philippi and in Ephesus and in Corinth and to say, behold, there's an open door. Let the King of Kings come in. This is why Jesus says in Mark 13, our gospel reading this morning, look, if you're a doorkeeper and the master's grand return is coming, there's one job you got to do. <laughs> Stay awake. Stay awake. I mean, essentially, this is what we're called to do 
when we live our everyday lives. Just stay awake. Stay alert. What if there's a person at the, at the dance recital who's actually in need of something and you're just having casual conversations and you're like, oh, wait a minute, I'm awake. There's an open door right there for the king. Stay awake to that. What if the king is coming into those very moments and we, the doorkeepers, are meant to stay awake? Be alert to it. Be attentive 